Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Natang Rinpoche. Chapter 17. The Bathyscape. A sad portrait, but it must be provided if debt is to be understood. Mr Gascoigne. I was never privy to his first name. He was a grey, emotionally ailing lizard somewhere in his early fifties. Encountering him was vaguely like walking onto the set of a 1940s movie, sans glamour. His pale grey suits, he had many of them, had lapels so thin I suspected them of anorexia. He wore an anemic dove grey shirt, the collar of which had died of malnutrition in 1951. A narrow dark grey tie barely covered his shirt buttons. The mother of pearl buttons on his shirt, however, were superb when one caught sight of them. My mother had a vast array of mother of pearl buttons. She'd inherited them from her grandmother and I stitched them onto every shirt I had. Mr Gascoigne wore a pair of those spivvy shoes worn by businessmen on the lounge lizard circuit. Mr Gascoigne, however, only wore them as house shoes. He was a pallid man of slightly less than average height. His languid, expressionless eyes revealed nothing of what lay behind them. His mind was indecipherable, as his range of facial expressions could only be detected with the aid of an electron microscope. I met him only once toward the end of the degree course. An interview was deemed obligatory. I attended, punctually. Subsequent to the interview, he gave his report to debt. I was better than imagined, but outré in appearance, abject in social background, quirky in speech and gauche in manner. I was a working-class hippie with amateur-cultivated airs. No wonder Det had been so keen to have me espouse all the correct views regarding the arts. But she'd never made it plain that it would be necessary in terms of impressing her father. It was transparent, however, that I'd failed. As soon as my first sentence made its unwelcome debut in his hearing. So, you are Victor Simerson, he opened, but whether it was a statement or a question, I could not ascertain. It would appear so, I replied with a smile, but could tell immediately from his frozen expression that I was not expected to treat him on equal terms as an adult. I remembered the words of Dudjum Rinpoche, with each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. Having met Mr Gascoigne, however, I understood a great deal about debt and her view of life and the arts. She'd absorbed her father's philosophy on the subject entirely, probably as a way of getting any semblance of love from the man. 
I could imagine Det coming home in the school holidays, desperate for affection from her father, and learning by heart the cultural creed according to Sepulcrave Gascoigne. His name wasn't actually Sepulcrave. I always thought of him by that name, however, because the ladies called him the Earl of Groan. They'd met him on several occasions and had not relished the experience. He'd not been hostile to them, merely sterile and aloof. He reminded Penelope, the gentlest of the three ladies, of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. I can just hear him saying, and if I'd ever learned, I too should have been a true proficient. It would have been just like him. Mr Gascoigne had been bereaved when Det was 12 years old and he had never recovered. As a result, Det was packed off to board at Badminton, a prestigious public girls' school in the north of Bristol. It was there that she made friends with Penelope, Rebecca and Merrill. Det only saw her father on school holidays although from as close as Bath she could have been a day student. Mr Gascoigne, however, felt he was not well equipped for parental duties beyond what was absolutely necessary. I found that incomprehensible. What duties? A 12-year-old girl hardly required much in the way of physical care and she would have made any normal father a wonderful companion. Det showed me a photograph of her mother. You take after her far more than your father, I observed. She was a beautiful woman. Naturally, but I think I'd probably take after my father more in temperament. I made no response to that, as saying... That is unfortunate, would have been churlish. Her father's temperament was something she needed to avulse if it were as if it were a tumour, but it was not my place to say that. Det had a high opinion of her father, as a father. I have to say, Det, that I could never quite see why you had to board at Badminton. I know you said that your father couldn't cope, but you were 12 years old and I think he did himself a disservice. And how would that be? Det replied in a flat tone that betokened it wasn't my business to comment. Well, I know it's not my business to comment, but wouldn't it have helped him with his bereavement? Not really. I would have reminded him of her. Yes, well, I would have thought that would have been good because he could have seen how he had not entirely lost his wife because you'd be there to show him something positive and be a companion. I wouldn't imagine a 12-year-old girl could be much of a companion. I've never had a 12-year-old daughter, so I can't say there are references in literature, two at least in Anthony Trollope's Chronicles of Barsetshire, that 
depict wonderful relationships between fathers and daughters. Yes, but they were adult women. In the books, yes, but they didn't appear out of nowhere as adult daughters. I'm sure Dr Thorne wouldn't have come down one morning and said, Goodness gracious, it appears I have a 21-year-old daughter. Who'd have thought it? Are you called Mary by any chance? Very droll, I'm sure, but I suppose I see what you mean. I think you survived because you met Penelope, Rebecca and Merrill, but I think your father might have come through it all better if you'd been at home with him. My impression of him is that he once had emotions, but now they're vacuum-sealed inside himself somewhere. Yes, there's some truth in that, but I think that being a boarder at badminton was a highly valuable experience. As you say yourself, my relationship with Penelope, Rebecca and Merrill was extremely important at that time, and that couldn't have happened if I'd lived at home. Yes, and I'd still be living in a bedsit in Chesterfield Road. So, as you see, it all worked out for the best. Well, yes, I thought, if only you could stop trying to be your father. Was it possible to cure her of that, or was she doomed to become lady-grown? My meeting with Mr Gascoigne had been brief and meaningless. It wasn't hideous, as my meeting with Lindy Dale's parents had been back in 1968, but it was equally inhuman. Mr Gascoigne was almost benign in comparison with Brigadier Dale, and I hadn't had to fight for my life as I had done back then. I'd simply been processed. He'd assessed me swiftly and dismissed me. I now have other concerns that require my attention. I wish you goodbye. Claudette will, no doubt, take you home directly. I almost burst out laughing. I almost said, I'm sorry I've taken up so much of your time, but checked myself. I didn't approve of my unexpressed sarcasm, but I was glad, at least, that I hadn't felt compelled to express it. I stood for a while in the kitchen, waiting for Det to appear, and after five minutes I noticed Det waving at me from the Rolls-Royce outside the front window, as if I should have known to look for her there. I left by the front door, rather than by the tradesman's entrance through which we'd previously gained admittance. And within seconds, I'd swung myself into the passenger seat. Right on cue with the bathyscape debt. Very droll. Bath escape indeed, debt commented with affected solemnity, but then burst out laughing. It was a relief to hear Det laugh about the situation because it normalised her, if such a word can be used. It wasn't that I needed her to be normal in the average sense, but it certainly felt better when I saw she was not entirely in tune with her father's point of view. He's a lovely gentleman, really, she said, 
but as you'll never get to know him, you'll never find out. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that I could say that about my father now. Maybe they should meet. What? Det almost choked. My little joke, Det. It would be like King Kong meets Godzilla. You may not respect your father, but I respect mine. I am jesting, Det, just as you like to jest. I have no wish to detract from your respect for your father, but I don't think it's healthy not to see the things that are comical about parents. And it's not that I have no respect for my father. In fact, now that we get on better, I have a growing appreciation of his better qualities. It takes a lot for a dock worker to gain qualifications in mathematics, engineering and surveying. He became a major, having entered the army as a private soldier, and that is somewhat uncommon. But you wouldn't want to be like him? No, Det, not in some respects at least. But I would like to have his perseverance and tenacity. I'd like to have his massive application to work and ability to learn. All in all, however, I'd like to be like my mother because... Debt cut me short. I never had the chance to learn to be like my mother. A silence ensued, after which I said, I'm genuinely sorry about that debt. And I was, but it was an accidental double entendre. I hoped it had escaped her notice. It had, or seemed to, at least. Then I wondered why I was immediately aware of what I'd said as a double entendre. Nonsense, of course I knew why. It was what I actually felt. But I felt both aspects of the double entendre. I was genuinely sorry that Det's mother had died. And I was genuinely sorry that Det had not learned to be like her mother rather than her father. It was always impossible to speak as plainly to Det as she did with me without hurting her. Somehow I could never quite bring myself to do that. She could speak plainly and directly to me because she lacked awareness and sensitivity. She felt she had the right to speak her mind. I rarely spoke plainly and directly in terms of giving her feedback, unless it proved absolutely necessary. I'd done so once before, but it had signified the probable end of the relationship. Our relationship should have ended at that point, but Det, for reasons too mysterious to fathom, had not wanted that. I knew Det was highly vulnerable and brittle under her camouflage carapace of sophistication. I knew that we could never have an equal exchange in terms of my being as direct with her as she was with me, but it was my obligation, as the stronger person, to be gentle. The problem with my being gentle in that fashion was that it put me in a parental position of being loving to the child with a proclivity for spitefulness. 
I only ever commented when she went too far, and it would have been utterly unrealistic not to have reminded her of her manners. She was always aware of my shift in approach at those times, and became pleasant. The problem there was that I never enjoyed relating to someone who was in need of periodic reprimands for haughty or acerbic speech. So why did I not take my leave of debt? I often asked myself that question, and the answer was always the same. The degree show was approaching, and it would have been damaging to debt to bid her adieu at such a critical time. Staying with debt until the end of the art school year was not such an imposition. She had many fine qualities and often amused me with her witty observations. We still laughed together and still enjoyed seeing plays together at one of the three theatres in Bristol. But the end was approaching. Sometimes I felt she had some sense of that and was making the most of my companionship while it was still on offer. <laughs>